Good evening. You don't have to say anything back because you're in silence. It's okay. I understand. I don't take it personally. (laughs) So this evening I would like to continue the teaching that uh, Chip began yesterday on the teachings of uh, what in the Buddhist tradition is called anatta, or not-self. And as I was talking to my colleagues in the teacher room just before coming in, and I said, oh, I think this is going to be a long talk, uh, accompanying the groans and moans about that, where um, Philip's comment was, how can you say so much about nothing? (laughs) (laughs) So this is going to be a lot of words, a lot of talk about nothing. or something, or nothing that we perceive as something. Reminds me of this story that a friend and colleague of ours tells when he was on a retreat. Actually, we were on the same retreat. It was a three-month retreat in uh, Insight Meditation Society in Barrie. And uh, it must have been during the transition. There was this this two, six-week uh, slots back to back, so it's three months but divided. So some people come for the first or second six weeks, and uh, I remember this man coming during the second six weeks. So when you know after six weeks, you're pretty settled and pretty quiet. And so when these new folks arriving to the retreat come, it can be a little you know ruffling and, and settling. And there was this one particular man in our in our um, corridor who was um, unusually loud and very physical and banged doors and had his, all his coats were very noisy and he just had a big presence. He stormed into the dining room and just there was this sort of ripple went around the room. <laughs> and J- um, James uh, was walking uh, in the lower walking room, which is a very quiet place to walk in, in, next to this, what's called the bowling alley. And just doing his slow walking, lifting, moving, placing, and this man comes bumbling down the bowling alley, you know, like a bowling ball, uh, with his loud coat, and, and walks past James, and, and the thought popped up for James, well, at least I've got less self than he does. <laughs> his other... His other um, note to himself that I like a lot is when he's doing walking meditation, he often says when he's really doing really slow walking, feeling really dropped in and feeling aware that he's dropped in, the note sometimes arises is looking good, looking good, looking good. So maybe you have your own version when you're doing your asana practice, you know, you're in a headstand or some difficult pose and I wonder if anybody's noticing. Looking good, looking good or wearing the right kind of yoga clothes, you know. Sometimes, sometimes I notice the studios I go to, the yoga studios, the, the yoga clothing stores are actually bigger in square footage than the studio itself. <laughs> I'm wondering what's going on here. <laughs> Anyhow. So the teachings of, of Anatta, part of the teachings on the three characteristics of unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, not self, this particular teaching 
from the Buddha uh, is one of the most perplexing, one of the most mysterious, one of the teachings that's most difficult to, to grasp, to grapple with, with the mind. And in a, ways, in a way, can't be fully understood with the mind. And our mind and your mind will probably try very hard to figure it out. It's probably already tried hard to figure it out and felt frustrated or confused or perplexed or maybe you feel like banging your head against the wall. And it's not, um, I don't think it's uh, unreasonable that this is a mysterious question because the, the, the question about who we are is one of life's deepest questions, one of, one of the mysteries. Who are we? What are we? Why are we? I generally don't use the why question, but what are we doing here? Mark Twain wrote, biographies are but the clothes and buttons of the man. The biography of the man himself cannot be written. The Buddha said, uh, about our about our capacity p- for perception and conce- and the way we conceive he said that which we conceive is ever other than is so that which we conceive is ever other than is so so the way that our mind conceptualizes and conceives the world and ourselves and reality is often very far from the actual living truth This is Mark Twain again. He said, we do not deal much in facts when we are contemplating ourselves. We do not deal much in facts when contemplating ourselves. So, tonight I don't want to go into the debate about whether there's a self or not a self. This is one of the questions that comes up when this topic comes up. Well, because, with the, because sometimes this teaching is translated as no self, which I think is a mistranslation. So people hear this idea, there's no self, and they say, well, feels pretty real to me. <laughs> what do you mean there's no self? There's no self, then how, who's meditating, or who's listening, or who's giving the talk, or who's listening to the talk? All of that. The Buddha, when he was asked that question, there was a wanderer called Vachagoda came up to the Buddha as as happened many times uh, in, the, in those times, there was a lot of spiritual teachers and teachings and a lot of competing spiritual uh, ideologies. And so this, this practitioner from a different uh, tradition came to the Buddha and said, is there a self? And the Buddha remained silent. And so the man said, well, is there not a self? And the, again, the Buddha remained silent. And this wonder of Achagoda got dissatisfied and walked away. And Ananda, the Buddha's trusted uh, attendant of many, many years, he said, how come he didn't answer him? It seemed like a reasonable question to me. Is it a self? Is it not a self? You teach a lot about self and selflessness. And the Buddha said, if I'd answered that the self exists, that would have encouraged eternalism. And if I'd answered the self does not exist, that would have encouraged nihilism. And the Buddha's teaching was a teaching between these two paths of eternalism, of thinking something exists forever, 
nihilism, extinction. So, as as is often with the, with the Buddhist teaching, his this this his use of, use of language and concepts is very subtle. A, a way to not reify any particular experience, particularly the experience of self. And he would. This is also true with his descriptions of nibbana, of enlightenment. Very careful of the, of the wording that he would use, so it wouldn't. So the mind wouldn't go, "Oh, this is it." Nibbana is like this or that. He would give metaphors and analogies and similes, but never say so concretely, because the mind you know, grasps and fixes and says, "Oh, it's like this. It's not this. It's that." And these teachings are not to be understood in that simplistic way through the mind. They're to be understood through our direct experience. The Buddha often said his teachings were ehipasiko. They were a come and see thing. They're they're invitations to explore. And he also said they're openayako, they're timeless, to be understood here and now. So this teaching, all these teachings, but particularly these more... um, what we can say, esoteric teachings, um, that we're not giving them as some pieces of dogma for you to say, well, this is now what I'm going to believe, but to see in your own experience, is this true? And to take it as an inquiry, as something to reflect on. You know, I've been reflecting on this teaching for over 20 years and probably will do for the rest of my life. And it grows in its understanding. Not something that we get overnight necessarily. We can have an immediate insight, which can be incredibly illuminating in the moment. It can be a microsecond, and the whole uh, understanding of this mystery of self can reveal itself and can radically change our whole lives. And we we contemplate this these teachings because the understanding, the insight into anatta does bring incredible sense of freedom, of peace, of ease, clarity, well-being. So I want us first to um, to sit. Oh, you're already sitting. Okay, that was easy. Um, so I just want you to to look into your own experience. So without changing your posture necessarily. Maybe close your eyes. Just sensing into your direct experience here and now. As the Buddha said in his teachings to Bahia, in the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, just the hearing. In the sensing, just the sensing. In the cognized, just the cognized. Silence, sounds.
what is the experience of self in this moment? Who do you take yourself to be in this moment? Is there something? Is there nothing? Is there an idea? Is there just a simplicity of your direct experience? There's a poem I like to read a lot on my nature retreats by an old Chinese poet. I don't know if he was old, but he's probably old now. It's about a thousand-year-old poem um, by Li Po. He said, the birds have vanished into the sky and the last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. Somebody rewrote this poem for the last retreat I was teaching here and the last line was something about, we sit together at Spirit Rock until only Spirit Rock remains. Kind of like that version. So that teaching of Bihir is pointing to the simplicity of our experience. As Chip was saying last night, the experience of the six senses, the five physical senses, experience of the mind, mentality, and everything else is an addition, is an overlay, is something we add to the experience. But maybe in that sitting, just as we were sitting, or maybe in other times you're sitting, you can sense into or, or feel what the Buddha was pointing to when he was teaching Bahia about the essence of his teaching. It's that simple, that empty, that clear. Or maybe we notice the, the accretions, the, the proliferations that we are always adding to our experience. So maybe you were sitting here this evening or earlier and it was like, wow, it's really quiet. I'm really getting somewhere. Wow, emptiness feels really good. I hope mine's the deepest. A person over there looks like they're really deep, but I, this time I feel like I'm really beating them this time. I can't wait to tell my partner when I get home how deep this experience of emptiness was. Like I was just so there, you know, one. And then of course we're gone into the land of the mind and papancha and proliferation, which is what we so often do with our experience, right? We have a moment, we have a glimpse, and then the I thought, the I claims the experience. Oh, look what experience I had. Look how empty I was. Look how deep I was. So we have the, the imminence, the, the, the rawness of the experience, and then it becomes a memory that the mind, the I process, the I making, the my making, Ahamkara, Mahamkara. The eye-making takes it over and 
adds it to itself, as it were. It's very colonial, the I. Imperialistic almost. It's sort of, you know, it just, you know, like, it's like a vacuum cleaner. You know, it just sucks everything up within its field. This is me, this is mine. This is who I am. This is going to bolster who I am. This is going to inflate, support my identity that I'm trying so hard to maintain. The Buddha said, he who has given up Papancha, this endless proliferation of mind, has found the bliss of Nirvana, the supreme peace. So maybe you've noticed in those moments when that proliferating imperialistic colonial mind is suddenly in cessation, that there's peace, there's moments of space, there's clarity, openness. So what exactly is being spoken about when we talk about the teachings of anatta? What, is, what aspect of the self is being pointed to? Because one of the, the problems with this teaching is that the, our language of the self, or ego, or different words that are used, um, are very generic, and they have lots of meanings in our, in, our, in our language. And so this is one of the reasons for the misinterpretation of, of this teaching. This is from the Dalai Lama. He says, the I which is being investigated is that which is felt to be permanent, independent, and under its own power, self-sufficient, or which seems to be substantially existent or self-sufficient entity. The I which is being investigated is that which is felt to be permanent, independent, and under its own power, or which seems to be a substantially existent or self-sufficient entity. So it's clearly not talking about the whole spectrum of the experience of self, but a particular, some particular pieces. We're looking at the, the aspect of this misconception that we're separate, that we're permanent and enduring in time, and that we're our own individual agency, that we're operating independently from anything else in the world. We're looking at the, the nature of how this, this self-concept is a construct. The I, the self-image, the self-representation that gets developed over time is a construct. Mark Epstein, uh, the, psych, the psychoanalyst and Buddhist writer, writes, the I that we are studying is not identical with the ego, but is a component of the ego. It's described as a self-representation, a fused and confused, constantly changing series of self-images. He goes on to further say, it is described as a self-representation, as agent, because it sees itself as one capable of activity. It conceives of itself as existing, ex- existing actively to pursue and ensure its well-being and survival. So the I thought is like a thought that pops up and says, hi, I'm here, 
It's me, I'm separate, I'm independent, and I'm in control, and I'm running the show. That's what we're examining, that's what we're looking at. Is that really true? Again, this is from Mark Epstein. He writes, Through mindfulness, the I experience is revealed to be a constantly changing and personal process, increasingly insubstantial the more it is examined. As a result, the self-concept that was once experienced as solid, cohesive, and real becomes increasingly differentiated, fragmented, elusive, and ultimately transparent. This concept, the idea of an anatta, of a persisting individual nature, is seen through by meditative insight. So I think over the years since this teaching has been brought to the West, uh, there's been a common, you know, this is certainly the language that was, I think, was used in the 70s and the 80s, was that this teaching meant egolessness, that we had to somehow get rid of the ego, as if we could get rid of the ego. And I like, I like the, the refinement of, of some of Epstein's language, um, who's, you know, as a psychoanalyst, has really studied the self from a Western psychological perspective. And um, you know, the way he talks about this aspect of the I that's being investigated is a component of the ego structure. We can't get rid of the ego structure. If we got rid of the ego structure, we would cease to function. There's many, many functions of the ego that are necessary for just everyday functioning in the world as an adult. You know, as Jack Engler used to write, that we uh, need a strong sense of self before we can actually see through the illusory nature of that self. That we need, you know, and they, they talk about this in the, in the psychodynamic literature, that it, it requires a very healthy ego structure to be able to look at itself and not feel fragmented um, or collapse at seeing its, its more unstable nature. You know, and from a developmental psychological perspective, when we first come into the world, we don't have a self-concept. We are in this undifferentiated, merged place of being. Merged with mom, merged with, actually in the beginning, merged with everything, and then mom differentiates herself. And it's only maybe at six months or nine months that we start to develop a self-concept, a self-image, a self-representation that gets reinforced naturally by, uh, by the people raising us, you know, that we are a separate individual being. You know, and as the developmental process continues, you know, we have the terrible twos and the separation individuation you know, which is part of that, that, that ego developmental process where we become auto- more autonomous. You know, we go through phases of autonomy and individuality and separation, necessary to function as a human being. And what, it's, it's one of the, 
sort of cruel ironies of being a human being and being uh, being on the path of waking up is that we have to we go from this place of merged oneness as it were to to this necessary process of separation to begin to discover that the separation is one of the sources of our deep suffering the sense of alienation separation and yet it's that very pain that comes from that existential angst that is what begins to call us home that begins to wake us up to say hey what's going on i'm living out of sync with reality well, it begins us coming home to our true nature. So I want to go into a little those uh, different ways of understanding the self. So we can understand the self through transience, through the sense of impermanence. The Buddha asked, which is your true self? The self of yesterday that of today or that of tomorrow, for whose preservation you clamor. Which is your true self? Is yourself the same? Are you the same person as you were yesterday? Or as the person that arrived on the retreat? Some of you talked about how different you feel from the last retreat or from when you first began this training 18 months ago. Are you the same person or a different person? It's really interesting to look at this idea of continuity. You know, Anna spoke to this some in her her talk on Nietzsche, especially when you hear about what's happening on a cellular level. You know, our liver changes every six weeks and our skin every month and our bones every seven years. And what is present here that was that was existent eight years ago. You know, every cell in the body has changed. Are we the same person? Are we the different person? We look at our pictures of our childhood or adolescence. Or is that is that me? Is that is that who you are? Is it the same person? Is it a different person? The dust on the table in your house. You know, that skin, you know, dust is mostly skin that's fallen off, you know, sloughed off when we shower and stuff. Is that me? (laughs) Oh, I better stick it back on. I'm feeling a little insecure today. (laughs) Yeah, where's the glue? Or we go and get, you know, we go to the hairdressers and they cut our hair, you know, which we've been tending to and loving and shampooing and conditioning and all that. And then it falls on the floor, and it's like, that's this. Can you take that? That's yucky. Take it away. You know, <laughs> it's no longer me. It's no longer I. But ten minutes ago, it was oh, my precious hair. You know, and I, you know. So this this sense of self is very mysterious, and this self identity, what we take to be mine. So what, what an interesting doorway into, the, into the, this sense of self is through the, the experience of transience. Because when we pay attention, we can see how this sense of self, when we start to really pay close attention, is not so solid. It's not so enduring in time as we think it is. There are moments, many, many moments, 
when the usual sense of self, sense of self-identity, self-referencing, self-image, is not present. It dissolves. It's absent. I notice this when I'm outdoors a lot, and I'm, say, in some meadow or some piece of forest somewhere, and I'm just really enjoying being out in nature and just merging with the, the natural world and how lovely that is and noticing how the sense of myself dissolves more easily outdoors. And then all of a sudden, I might hear some hikers coming down the trail, or some mountain bikers, even worse, or something like that. And all of a sudden, there's a sense, the sense of self re-coalesces itself. There's a sense of fear, or curiosity, or grasping after the stillness, or aversion towards the intrusion. And all of a sudden, that sense of oneness, of merging, of this being dissolved and being in love with everything has, has vanished. And there's a sense of, who are these people? And what do they want? And am I safe? And am I wearing the right clothes? And do I have the right gear on? You know, do I have my Patagonia, you know, coolest, you know, thing on? You know, recycled jacket, you know. And then they, you know, so there's this, so this disturbance in the field as it were, and then they, you know, maybe they take another trail and they don't come anywhere near, but the voices trail off. And then all that sort of selfing, that eye-making, starts to relax. And it's sort of, oh, you know, tune back into the silence and the sounds and the, the nature, the beauty. And maybe that sense of self dissolves again. Or maybe when you wake up in the morning, Often when we wake up, there's some moments, if not several minutes, where the sense of self hasn't reawoken, hasn't coalesced yet. We wake up and it's like, huh. And there's a kind of a peaceful, maybe slightly foggy, but peaceful, you know, where there's just not that sense of self-identity and me and my and my story and my drama and what I have to do today, my to-do list and... Is my partner still mad with me? And then, yeah, you know, and we just like, oh, where am I? <laughs> yeah, this is nice. <laughs> it's not even, even the mind isn't churning that much. And then suddenly we remember, oh, I'm at Spirit Rock. Oh, God, I've got a yogi job at 6.30. Oh, my God. And, you know, and suddenly we're, oh, we're late. And, oh, I missed the sitting. Oh, my God, they're going to think I'm terrible. And the, the dramas of the self have 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 kicked into gear. And what do we feel? We feel miserable. We feel suffering. We feel tense. We feel tired. We feel contracted. You know, it's always instructive to look at the moments that we experience as peaceful, that we all crave. We all crave those moments of peace, of ease, of quiet, of tranquility non-stress, not being pulled, not feeling the demands. Usually those moments, if you pay attention, are moments when the sense of self is not very active, if, if not completely dissolved in that moment. When you're sitting out on that, this patio out here and you're just watching the light and the grasses or the deer feeding at dusk, or um, you're just completely at one with your walking practice, just the feeling of stepping on the earth lightly. And there's complete unity. <coughs> sense of self, 
the sense of, oh, I'm watching, I'm doing my meditation, I hope everybody thinks I'm great. No, it's just gone. And there's just connection, stillness, peace. Or when we're sitting in meditation and we're just completely at one with the breath. No inside, no outside, no sense of anybody watching the breath. is just breath breathing itself, the body being breathed. And there's a knowing of that. And there's a sense of incredible spaciousness, stillness, until the mind comes in and goes, wow, this is really cool. I'm really getting somewhere. I'm really on the right track. I'm going to teach this when I get home. Body breathing, full body breathing, <laughs> oneness with the breath. I can do a whole workshop, you know. I, mean, I could cash in a little more on this workshop thing, you know, and uh, if we go, go creating workshops and becoming the great body breathing master, you know. And <laughs> so the second way we can understand this sense of self is um, in the sense of... Uh, it's translated in different ways, so I think there's different aspects of this teaching, but it's a sense of um, being independent and the sense of agency. So I'm calling this individual agency. The sense of belief in our control, that we have, in the belief that we have control over things. You know, that we can control our experience, we can control our bodies, we can control our minds like that joke that you probably all heard that goes, um, what does God do when you tell him or her your plans? He laughs, she laughs. It's, like, it's this idea that we're in control. You know, I'm going to do this and this and the next year I'll do that. And, you know, and who knows? You know, maybe it'll happen. You know, we can set our intention. We can set lots of good intentions and have plans. But if we're really aligned with the truth, we see that who knows whether anything's going to happen you know, that we planned. We don't know whether we're going to walk out this door this evening. Who knows? So, for instance, do, we, do you decide when to think a thought? How many of the maybe thousands of thought this retreat maybe tens of thousands of thoughts by this point. Actually, no, we think, I think we think 60-some thousand thoughts a day. So the, of the hundreds of thousands of thoughts that you've had in the last six days, however many days it's been, how many did you ha- have control over? How many did you, did you decide, oh, now I'm going to think about all the frustrating things that are broken in my house, <laughs> all the problems I'm having in my relationship, or all why my... Asana practice sucks. Do we, do we consciously will those thoughts into being? Or I'm going to feel really depressed this next meditation. I'm going to feel like really grief-stricken and morose and so depressed about my life and my body. And, you know. do, do we decide that? No, the emotions come seemingly unbidden. All those things are rising out of conditions known and unknown, mostly unknown, or I'm going to decide to have this really painful memory, and this really excruciating moment in childhood when I was really humiliated. Do we decide that? No, it just arises out of, out of the mystery, you know, out of this 
mystery of mind and body. Or I'm going to decide, I'm going to decide to really get sleepy about halfway through my meditation. <laughs> Pretty much every meditation today, you know, I'm going to get really concentrated and then halfway through I'm just going to zonk out. <laughs> no, but that's what happens most of the time. <laughs> or I'm going to sit down at three o'clock today, I'm going to have amazing bliss and rapture. <laughs> Because at two o'clock it was naff, so I'm, you know, I'm, it's about time I had some rapture. You know, okay, two fifteen, two fifty nine. I'm waiting. Okay, okay. How do they do it in the ads? They do it like that. You know. No, it doesn't work like that. We, you know, a lot of practice is creating supportive conditions for wholesome conditions to arise. for insight to arise. We create these conditions of retreat, of meditation, of concentration, of community, of teachings. So we we do have some control over over this relative reality, and we do our best to, to create conditions that are supportive for our body, our mind, each other, for our awakening. But we also have to let go to what happens. You know, we can't say, we can't will an insight. Okay, I'm going to really, really get this teaching on NADA by 9.30 tonight. Okay. No, it doesn't happen like that. We can, we can ask, we can be curious. We can turn the mind towards it. But insight is another one of those things we have no control over. We, we set the conditions. So Time Magazine, some years ago, um, devoted a whole issue to the brain and all this this research in neuroscience, but with a particular focus of um, who's in charge, like who's who's the agent behind the brain, like who's who's running the show. So they had all these studies about the brain and um, agency and control and decision-making and and their, their outcome, their results, was they couldn't find anything. They couldn't find anything that was behind the show, that was pulling the strings. You know, we have this idea that there's a little person behind there in the brain somewhere, you know, deciding, controlling. And some, somebody, somebody has to be grown up in there somewhere you know, who's, who, who's responsible. You know, adult supervision, you know. And they looked, this Time magazine, you know, big studies, you know. What was surprising to me was there wasn't a national outcry. Oh my God, there's nobody in control. There's nobody running the show. (laughs) The president, there's nobody running the show behind the president. So who's running the president? Well, we might know that. We might know that answer, but that's another story. The Buddha said, if my body was self, I could tell it to be this way or that, and it would do so. If my body were self, I could tell it to be this way or that, and it would do so. We would tell our body, okay, this week, this retreat, you're not going to get sick, because this is a really important retreat, and you know, I just, you know, sickness sickness is not going to happen. And what happens? We come on retreat, we get a cold, or flu, or sore throat, or cough, or who knows, aching limbs, old injury comes back. So it's humbling. This teaching is humbling. The ego does not like this. 
to, to, to have this, have its control and power questioned. So, third way we can understand the self, the sense of self, is through this notion of separateness. This idea that we're separate. Separate, independent, individual. Is it true? Are we really independent from anything? Are we really separate from the world that we live in? You know, we're physical, sensate organisms that can't exist for a moment without a whole host of conditions. What happens if there's no gravity? We'd all be at the top of this roof here, you know. What happens if there was no air? You would have a very short Dharma talk. <laughs> you know, four minutes without oxygen would be brain dead. Without the heat of the sun, without the heat from plants, from the, the, the met- metabolism through digestion, we would be cold, we would die. So this, we, we, we're, we're so inextricably linked to this vast matrix of life that we completely take for granted because it's, it's not, it's, it's sort of, on one level it's invisible, another level it's very visible. One of the reasons I like doing these, uh, these my retreats outdoors in, in the wilderness is, is that becomes much more real. You know, we, we take our water from the mountain stream you know, it's maybe rained the night before and we're drinking the rain from the stream. And then we say we base camp on this mountain for a week and after three or four days, you know, since the body is 70% water, we have become 70% the mountain stream. It's such a beautiful, direct, immediate knowing. Oh, of course I'm not separate. What a, what a, what a silly fallacy that I'm separate from this land, this water, this air, these elements. Or you come into the room and somebody's weeping with what seems like great sadness. And you immediately feel your heart melting, opening, tender, compassion. Again, we're not separate. Or we hear somebody laughing and we're infected by the lightness of the spirit and we feel lighthearted. You know, we're, we're always affecting each other. We come into the room, perhaps you come into the, into the sitting late, and there's just incredible stillness. And you feel the deliciousness of the support that we give each other in our practice. You know, that we're not doing this alone. We never do this alone. You know, it's a rare, what they call a pracheka Buddha, that wakes up alone. It's a very rare, rare being that wakes up without support of teachers, of teachings, of sangha, of community. Most of us need this support, need this, this web of interconnection we know as sangha. You know, the economy that's just gone through this whole turmoil reveals the fallacy of, 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 of this sense of separateness, that nothing is separate anymore, that, that every nation state and their economy is in, in, inextricably linked with every other economy. So it's even dissolving the sense of national separation. 
This is from Einstein. A human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and his feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of a prison restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole nature in its beauty. So I love this, this concept that we're living in this optical delusion of consciousness, that we're separate. And it really is an optical delusion. We may notice in meditation how this sense of separate identity gets eroded. You know, often we can be sitting in meditation in stillness, and our eyes closed, and the sense of this boundary of skin that we so identify with as me, that drops away. And if you close your eyes right now, where is the body? The body is a concept. We may experience sensations, touch points of sensations in space. Maybe we feel the sense of our boundary dissolve. And there's no particular boundary between my body, the air, the space around me, all the beings around me. Yeah, so, we, so we can touch this in, that, in our direct experience in meditation. Somebody mentioned, uh, which I thought was very interesting, she said, when I'm doing my asana practice and I'm really in alignment, the sense of self softens. The sense of self gets, gets softer. There's something about the alignment, the, the proper alignment of the body supports this, this process. So something that I like to talk about um, in, in, relationship, in relationship to this theme is, is this process of what I call selfing. That we do with ourselves and each other. And I, I, I reflect on this a lot because of the time that I spend outdoors, particularly when we go outdoors, as many of you do, many of you are doing walking and hiking and, and just being outdoors here. Um, and one of the things that, that's so powerful about the natural world is when we, when we go into, the, into an environment away from human beings and human constructions, we, we move into a realm or reality where the primary experience of life that isn't selfing itself or each other. Right? It's only human beings that, that create the sense of self project a sense of self outwards to everything. You go out into the woods, the oak tree is not thinking, you know, I am just the coolest dude oak tree around. You know, those bay trees, they just, they just haven't got it on us oaks. You know, and there's some pretty amazing oaks out there, which I you know, could say that, but they don't. Because they're not selfing. They're not self-referencing. They're just being. They're being oakness. They're being bay. They're being baying. And so what happens is that that sense of um, self-referencing, selfing process that we get caught up in so much in starts to, starts to relax. We start to sort of feel the, we feel touched by that, 
that lack of selfness in nature. And as I mentioned, that, that example about the, the story of people coming, you know, that sense of, sense of uh, self-boundary starts to soften. And then maybe we notice it sort of recoalesce as we come back into the into 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 space here, into the hall, into um, into into where people are. So, so many words, so little time. So little words about nothing, apparently. But so, I'm going to read a poem just to, just for the hell of it. It relates, and it, but it's another way into this. You know, sometimes we can get very cerebral, and sometimes poetry is a little more doorway through the heart. This is from Mary Oliver, called Such Singing in the Wild Branches. And it's speaking to this idea of how when we're completely present, completely at one with that which we're present to, it takes us through to this deep perception of, of selflessness. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers, all trim and neat for the year just like these red-headed thrushes. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened. When I seemed to float, to be myself a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying, and the sands and the glass stopped for a pure white moment, while gravity sprinkled upward like rain, rising, and in fact, it became difficult to tell just what was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters, and also the trees around them, as well as their gliding long-tail clouds and the perfectly blue sky. All of them were singing, and of course, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. So I must have read that poem a lot and I just reading that, feeling very touched by those words and partly because we're surrounded by the song of red-headed thrushes, which is what she's speaking about. This beautiful song that you hear in the mornings the, the thrush come back in late March and they start uh, mating and nesting in April and um, sing this full-throated song. 
And it's a doorway, you know, when we're present, when we're mindful, open, you know, these things are doorways into something way beyond the singing of the birds. We can be touched, you know, and just as you said, we become one with the, the birds. Everything is singing. And we have a glimpse into something. We have a glimpse into a reality, a glimpse, in, glimpse into another, into a depth of perception, into what we might call the mystery, or the divine, or the sacred, or emptiness, and the sense of self that we normally carry around has utterly dissolved, completely become one with all that is. And we get, a, we get a glimpse, we get a taste of a different order of being, a different way to be. And that experience, that openness to be touched is available in any moment. It could happen while you're eating a Brussels sprout, you know. Could happen while you're looking at somebody in meditation and just being touched by the purity of them sitting, the goodness. You know, could be happening while you're bowing to the Buddhas here. You know, just touching the sacredness of your breath. We don't know. We lay the conditions to be open, to be touched by the mystery. This is from Rumi. He says, What I want most is to spring out of this personality, then to sit apart from that leaping. I've lived too long where I can be reached. This is from West Niska, our beloved crazy wisdom, rascal, poet, He says, one suggestion is to regard your personality as a pet. (laughs) It follows you around anyway, so give it a name and make friends with it. Keep it on a leash when you need to and let it run free. And when you feel that that's appropriate, train it as well as you can and then accept its idiosyncrasies. But always remember that your pet is not you. Your pet has its own life and just happens to be in an intimate relationship with you, whoever you may be hiding there behind your personality. The word personality comes from the Greek word mask. So I'm just, um, I have many more things to say. I'm just um, doing a little uh, patchwork quilt of just pointing to a few more things before I close. I don't want to keep you too long. So, um, This is from 
Jewish tradition. One day, a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by this example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The Seamus, the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, look who thinks he's nobody. (laughs) So I read that mostly to to make the point that um, it's not about being nobody in the sense of non-existent nobody. It's not about negating ourselves, negating who we are, but seeing more truthfully what we are. This is from Stephen Batchelor. Stephen Batchelor, who's a wonderful Buddhist teacher and writer, and in several of his books has written some really clear things about self. Um, I think this is from Buddhism Without Beliefs. There's some very, very... uh, excellent uh, teachings if you want to explore this theme more. He says, self-consciousness is at once the most obvious and central fact of my life and the most elusive. If I search for myself in meditation, I find it is like trying to catch my own shadow. I reach for it, but there's nothing there. Then it reappears everywhere. I glimpse it from the corner of my mind's eye, turn to face it, and it's gone. Each time I think I've pinned it down, it turns out to be something else, a bodily sensation, a mood, a perception, an impulse, or simply awareness itself. I cannot find the self by pointing at any physical or mental trait and saying, yeah, that's me. For such traits come and go, whereas the sense of I remains constant. But neither, neither can I put my finger on something other than these traits. However ephemeral and contingent they may be, nonetheless they define me. The self may not be something, but neither it is nothing. It is simply ungraspable, unfindable. I am who I am, not because of an essential self hidden away in the core of my being. This is the important point. I am not, I am who I am, not because of an essential self hidden away at the core of my being, but because of the unprecedented and unrepeatable matrix of conditions that have formed me because of the unprecedented and unrepeatable matrix of conditions that have formed me. So we all, because of that unrepeatable matrix of conditions, we're all incredibly unique. That's that's the koan of this this sense of self. We all have this incredible uniqueness that then the eye, the mind, reifies. But what, what we overlook is this the conditions that are constantly giving forth, creating this sense of self. This is from Dogen. To study the way is to study the self. To study oneself is to forget oneself. To forget oneself is to be awakened by all things. To be awakened by all things is to let mind and body of self and others fall away. So this is again the mystery. We study the self, we study the way, we study the Dharma, we study the way to forget the self. By forgetting the self, 
we become open to be touched by all things. And lastly, and not least, one of the crucial pieces about seeing into the nature of self, of disentangling from the identification process that happens with self, is that that it naturally starts to um, reduce the sense of self-referencing, self-obsession, self-centeredness. Because we're not so caught up in reifying and trying to maintain this image, this identity, this personality. Nisargadatta puts it this way. He says, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. As we see into the emptiness, it allows the heart to open. It's another doorway for the heart. It's not the only doorway, but it's one of the ways that the heart opens. And I'm going to close with this quote from Shantideva, who is a wonderful Buddhist teacher, Indian teacher in the 7th, 8th century, who wrote The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. He said, the reason we don't reach out to help others is because of the attachment to the sense of ourselves as separate. This actually isn't from Shantideva. (laughs) This is a commentary about Shantideva from Stephen Batchelor, and then then we go into Shantideva. So, it goes like this. I'll start again. Shantideva understands that the reason we don't reach out to help others is because of the attachment to the sense of ourselves as separate. That we only reach out in a limited way to those close to us we consider mine, like our loved ones. As our intuitive understanding of the illusory nature of the self deepens, we naturally wish to reach out and help. When we don't see anything as separate, the natural inclination is to desire to relieve the suffering of others. Just as one hand naturally reaches to attend a wound on our own leg, so too we feel the impulse to help those in pain. Compassion moves from being a concept to a natural inclination of the heart. As Shantideva writes, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. So let's sit together. So again, as we sit together, not looking to the past, not looking to the mind for any kind of reference, who are you in this moment? What are you in this moment?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.